History of Bleiweiss, session 107. So yesterday we talked about, welcome back on. Yesterday we talked about some demographics at the very end. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to catch up, but um, we said before World War I, the world population had grown from the beginning of this, of, uh, from the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th century, from 9 million, oh, that, yeah, 9 million to now, now we're at 13.5 million. Um, where there were about 9 million in Europe alone. Um, and of those 13.5, there were a little more than 1 million Jews under Muslim rule. Today, one has the impression that this, what we call generally the Sephardi world is much more populous, um, partly because they represent some of the more committed Jews. I, I, they're the I, more, they're, I, I never thought that though. You never is thought the Sephardi were so populous? Is it, is it true? Well, maybe that because that? I live in Israel and one hears about them a lot more and they are, they do, uh, they, they, they have a big um, impact in society. One hears about them, they have a demographic that's politically significant, and so on, but that's more of a contemporary phenomenon through most of history, the, the Muslim world, the Muslim, the Jews living under Muslim rule, um, it was not the case. And we laid out the basic of the, the largest concentration was in North Africa um, and, and all the way down. Now, the demographics, is it about the 1950 or do we know? What, what's more? Ashkenazi still is larger. I thought so. It's still it's still larger, but it used to be like there was no comparison with nine million Ashkenazi Jews in Europe. Um, the uh, the collective Sephardi population was um, again a little over a million out of thirteen point five. The they also one of the differences is they how do you say this precisely? The Ashkenazim suffered bitterly, miserably. Every single diaspora they were in, some more, some less, but but effectively it was it was um, uh, almost never a generation without some horrific uh, series of events transpiring, um, and the Sephardi world suffered not as much, but they suffered too. Is the best way of saying it. You know, to say that they did better than the Ashkenazim <laughs> somehow implies that they had a good life, which was hard to say. They were still dima with the Christians under Muslim rule. They were second-class citizens. They paid the jizya tax. They had restrictions. There were their own attacks. There were pogroms, but because compared with the, if you compare it with the Ashkenazi world, they, they're smaller in dimension, but that doesn't make them any uh, less terrible. So in 1941, when the Nazis were um, winding down to their own final solution, which gets all the attention because of its novelty and because of because of the numbers and the, 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 the dimension of the uh, of of the uh, crime. So we generally don't hear. But in 1941 in Baghdad there was an attack in which 150 Jews were murdered, not related to the Nazis, just another garden variety attack. Um, generally, this is another statement I'm going to make. That's a generalization. Uh, we saw in the time of the Rishonim, we have, of the big names of Rishonim, a longer list, it seems, of Sephardim than Ashkenazim. And um, that would change, and the center of gravity would shift eastward to Poland and Russia, and we have a plurality of big names, as I think has been represented when we've gone through and we've, we've talked about some of the big names here, that the center of Torah was much more so in Europe, which is not to say they didn't have big names, but they were fewer and far, far between. 
there were several Muslim populations that we've met, just as a sampling, um, that they were totally isolated from Torah Center, that they had their imuna was, uh, was undaunted, but their knowledge base. Remember the story of the Bukharan Jews and the Jews in Crimea that the, uh, that the state Chemed uh, revived. And um, yeah, that would be more typical. Their um, descendants would be very, very receptive to Kiruv uh, today. And we see, and that's, that to me, that reflects the fact that the Yerushalayim is extremely strong. Um, and and the, part, the part that I really want to um, focus on now is the fact that until the breakup of the Ottoman Empire with World War One, that's why I'm talking about it right now, right in the, right in the eve of World War One, <laughs> the um, Jewish communities in Muslim-ruled lands were mostly isolated, mostly removed from the Enlightenment, which has now devastated much of the mainstream, larger uh, Ashkenazi world, but these, you know, these pockets of Jews were living more or less safely um, out of reach of the of the what they call the emancipation, and um, that would change after World War One, especially with the with two of the global powers. I'm, I'm referring to England and to France, who would be very very um, active after the war in their victory to continue their colonial activities and they'll go and take over many of the lands where Jews have been living uninfluenced by their you know these these ideas and um, they would suddenly be influenced the leading Rav was the Chacham Bashi we've seen that we've, we've heard the term before we've, we've seen several people who, uh, who who filled this role um, it was not always the leading Rav we saw the the Ben Ishchai was actually not a Chacham Bashi, even though he was recognized as the Gadolador in the Middle East. Um, he was generally a revered figure. There was Kavitera. Um, I'm speaking in generalizations, generally, stereotypically. Uh, that last statement doesn't really pertain to the Persian Jewish community, who, um, for whatever reasons, the, um, it was simultaneously a community of immense faith and substance and intelligence, but Talmud Torah, until recently, was not necessarily central and revered. And so the Chacham Bashi was often perceived as a nebuch, uh, as kind of a, you know, couldn't get a better job. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. We have some of our greatest students in Derech are Persians, and they, um, unlike other populations, tend to get a disproportionate resistance from their parents, let's say if they want to come back to Shana base or they want to come even in the first place to come to Eretz Yisrael and learn Torah, uh, the family doesn't really uh, relate to that. They think that the child is wasting their time and get on with a career already. Um, so, but that's, that's the exception. That was Persia. Most other Eidot um, HaMizrach, um, Eastern communities, um, have a reverence for Hashem, for Torah, for the whole package. Um, even if their knowledge was limited, even if their frumkite was weak, uh, the pneumius, the, the insides, was, were very strong usually. Problem was, once they were exposed to modernity, they um, didn't have a mechanism of resistance. Um, after years of resisting the Enlightenment, the Ashkenazi Torah world developed a thick skin developed a uh, series of uh, defense mechanisms to be able to stave off the influences. Part of the, what you see today in the um, isolationism of the Haredi camp is this, is the recognition that the more you integrate with modernity, the less likely your children will come out from. 
So the Sephardi world, having not been exposed to these dangers, simply were suddenly and sometimes dramatically overnight. We're going to hear, for example, about uh, in, 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 by the time of the War of Independence, Milchemes Tashach, suddenly large populations of Sephardi Jews coming from various um, lands will, will, will descend in Israel, and they will be exposed to the modern Israeli state, which is extremely assimilated, extremely uh, enlightened, in, 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 um, and, and uh, they don't, they'll, they'll assimilate. They, they won't have the... Um, they won't be able to resist the um, the allure of the new and the and and, and the demand to make money, um, <coughs> the, um, political Zionism in the 1940s and especially in the 1950s, the early years of the state would take advantage of this, and we'll tell that story when we get to that point in time. Um, but it's not just in in Palestine and Israel; it's certainly throughout the Western world. Um, they uh, different dynamic. As much as they would be, they would fall prey. Let's say in their in their lack of resistance, they would easily they would easily go off the derech, but just as easily come back on because, in a, to a, to a large degree, they never left. Inside, they, they they remain very very strong and so very and, and thereby very receptive to the message of Kiruv, um, and the like. And I think this morning we were talking about this in Shir that the. Uh, you you go in you go in Israel today and you and you know that the taxi driver who seems totally secular but says Tehillim or the woman who dresses uh, inconsistently with halachic standards utterly immodest but wouldn't hear of the idea of missing uh, uh, um, a month at the mikveh if she if if if, if she's in Nida that's something that she received from her mother and the internal mitzvahs are very much still there kashrus is there. Um, and, and many of the other um, internal mitzvahs, but externally they would, uh, many of them would assimilate. Uh, and we'll get to this also with the rise. That I know I came up earlier because we're talking about Shas, the revolution of Shas in the um, 1980s, which came up at lunch yesterday too. Um, what's called in world history, World War One, or at the time it was not called World War One because we didn't have the concept of World War Two. it was the Great War, um, would often, Let's say in our discussions, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish uh, myopic memory. We don't we don't tend to see very far. Um, we should have historical consciousness, but we often lack it. Often, World War One is is eclipsed by World War Two. World War Two certainly has the um, um, seems to overshadow, and and um, in terms of just basic novelty and well, dimension in World War Two. Yes, certainly in dimensions. Certainly in means. In terms of uh, new kinds of warfare, new kinds of, uh, and, and, and the dimension of the attack, the war against the Jews was unprecedented. But World War I, I think the best way of understanding it was in fact the beginning of the end of European Jewry. Europe had been the home to Jews for almost a millennium as the central base of, uh, of the Jewish world and it's the beginning of the end and I think it's a more accurate reading of history Oh, you know that wars and names of wars and you know the, the decision to date a war beginning with the assassination of Archbishop right, the, 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 the Ferdinand and, and then to end it with some kind of armistice, these are arbitrary things, right? These, these are arbitrary delineations. So I'm going to suggest a different arbitrary delineation and suggest that World War I was really the beginning of World War II and the process continued all the way till 1945 with clear and obvious respite in the middle, but the process and the, the connecting lines are unmistakable. Do you see the same patterns again today? No. 
In what? What, what, what's, what, well, do you, like what, do you, what kind of a parallel? Anything you would draw to connect the two, when you, when you start to see those patterns recurring? It's both. harder when you're immersed. It was, the last statement that I made is much easier to make with hindsight, for sure. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, I would say, I don't know if this is what you're referring to. To some degree, you could date the, what the so-called Arab-Israeli conflict, which is something we're going to come upon soon enough, um, back to some would start 1882 with the large arrival of the first, uh, the first large arrival of Jews to Palestine. Others would start with the um, original Arab riots in 1920 and 1921. And that too could be seen as one continuous war that's never let up. There's never really been a truce. There's never been a reconciliation of the various parties. It simply waxed and waned over the years. Sometimes there's attrition. Sometimes there's, um, there's, 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 a, there's a truce called, but the war is never abated. Right. And so when it breaks out again, a few are surprised because there's been no resolution. So on that level, yeah. But I, I'm referring to specifically the dynamics in Europe and particularly the destruction of European Jewry, which obviously is our focus. Uh, that, that's, that's, this is the beginning of the end. And with Iraq, with the Gulf, with the Gulf War and everything, yes. that, that was started <coughs> and it continues going. Excellent illustration of the same idea, right? I mean, the, what, what starts and what ends, these are arbitrary kinds of... Um, kinds of decisions, sometimes with interesting, uh, you know, different reasons for for purposes of analysis or understanding that you would start something at a certain time and at another time. A lot of the time it, I mean, it's not true just about wars, a lot of the time it promotes your own ideological bent. So that, for example, we, we alluded to the, to, the, um, to the reality that most histories of modern Zionism begin with 1881 or 1882, with the Sufot Benegev, uh, with the attacks in Eastern Europe, and then the, 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 the uh, resultant um, mass aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, not such mass aliyah, but the resultant aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, that's the beginning of the Zionist history. Well, that's pretty convenient because that also coincides with the beginning of secu the secularism of the Jews and the new nationalistic agenda. But wait, wait a minute, what about the Yeshuvah Yashan? What about all those Jewish families that can trace their lineage back to Bayez Shani and, and through all the Doridoros? They count for nothing? They, they, they actually, as we tried to present, present it, and I think a lot of historians would back this up, um, the Yeshuva Yashans and the Prushim, the students of the Vilna Gaon, set the infrastructure of much of what would become the state. So they're often written out of the, the narrative, and that's an ideological truism because they don't really like to see that the state is an extension of religious Jewry. Religious Jewry, for the, from the secular narrative, is, is an inconvenience to be overcome. So yeah. The uh, war is declared in 1914 on, it happens, the de declaration of war, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the beginning, but again, these are arbitrary dates, uh, was on the 9th of Av. It would, in big, in, 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 I could spend a lot of time in the war, I'm not going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a few comments um, in terms of how it affects Klal Yisrael. It leads, in general, in the world to an unprecedented <laughs> bloodbath, the greatest scene in history till this time. Um, we know this is true. You all heard this, the insight before that mankind has never created a weapon that it's, it's done, it neglects to use. 
So with the new technology from the Industrial Revolution, now you have the capacity to murder in mass numbers, maim, permanently injure in all kinds of, um, in all kinds of ways, and these are used. Mustard gas and um, whole populations, you know, I, I, I mentioned this at one point, uh, this is not a class in the suffering of the British people, but um, uh, uh, to some degree, a whole generation of British men French. were white, French too. I'm just, I'm just, I'm focusing on British, for example. A whole generation of, Brit of British young men were wiped out. Obviously, there were exceptions to that, but more or less. And so that had huge ramifications, including the fact that a whole generation of British young women never got married. That was known. There were a lot of like old dames. In, you know, and, 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 and spinsters on the British Isles as, as, as an offshoot of this war. Um, there would be almost 10 million dead on all sides. Again, we're jaded by the numbers coming out of the Second World War, but coming out of that, nobody saw that coming. It was a war that arguably nobody really won, even though there were clear, there were clear losers all around, but even the victors uh, suffered terribly. There was no clear resolution. What came of it exactly? They punished Germany. Um, and by many accounts, especially some of the, um, let's say the, the post, the recent uh, analyses often point back to a big villain, Kaiser Wilhelm, who we met in this class when he came to Eretz Israel in 1898, and Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zunenfeld refused to go out and greet him. He said, I'm not gonna go greet the king of Amalek, certainly not say the bracha. So if you had to point to one man and you want to learn about him, go, go, go look up his, his, the basics in, let's say, uh, you know, a Wikipedia entry, and you can see he, he, um, he represents Amalek. He is a fulfillment in, to a large degree of the Gemara in Megillah on Vava Madalaf and Base about, about finally Germany, Germania, Shel Edom, breaking, breaking out. Um, but to only understand it in light of Germany and to only see his role in it is to miss the whole big picture. Many of the other nations were certainly drawn in. Um, nobody was blameless, as we've said many times. Um, nobody comes out smelling clean in a cesspool. Um, tens of thousands of Jews fought, often on different sides, depending on which country they were serving with. Mo many of them were not religious Jews, although there were religious Jews who served. Um, they usually, as was typical, as remains typical in our history, they could do no rights. They were perceived as traitors, um, whether they fought, whether they didn't fight. They, um, this was especially true in Russia. Almost every defeat at the hands of the powers, the other powers, would result in immediate pogrom against whatever local Jewish community was conveniently there and available to be attacked. Uh, that was the way it worked. That's what scapegoating uh, classically meant. Um, most yeshivas throughout Europe were forced to disband. Most rabbanim lost their support. Um, traditional life weakened considerably. Um, this is in Europe. Um, there were, at the time, about 100,000 Jews in Palestine that still, and only for a little bit while, little while longer, is still under the Ottoman regime. Ilan, maybe let it keep it. Under the Ottoman regime. Um, the, uh, the Jews in Ottoman Palestine suffered at the hands of the Turks. At, at, at the Turks. Um, 
there were relative to 100,000 Jews, about 50,000 Jews, 50,000 Arabs in Palestine. Pay attention to these numbers. The 50, excuse me, 50, 500,000 Arabs, five times as many Arabs than there were Jews. It's tiny. It's tiny Jewish population, and it's a, but relatively large given where we had been just a couple decades earlier. Okay? And 500,000 Arabs, about two-thirds of those Arabs had also just arrived in the last 30 years. So when, the, when they talk about the, the so-called first Aliyah, that was not just an infusion of Jewish life into Eretz Yisrael, it was also a massive uh, demographic infusion. Um, Arabs also mostly came. Um, when, the, when the Palestinians, who are expert at propaganda, talk about their long-lost homeland, from overwhelming, the overwhelming numbers of them, it was not really their long-term homeland. Going back a couple hundred years, you'd find just a few, uh, you know, with, with the same, you know, who, who can trace their lineage from today back a couple hundred years uh, that their family was actually here because a lot of those who had authentically really stayed on the land have subsequently left. Arafat uh, made, it, made a lot about, Yasser Arafat, the founder of the Palestinian Liber Liberation Organization, made a lot to do of, of the fact that he was born in Jerusalem and was a refugee, only he was born in Cairo. And like that. And, and, and so the, the, their claims to the land are not quite as deeply rooted as they'd like to believe or as, they, as, they, as, or as their propaganda uh, successfully convinces the world. The, um, a new city that had just come onto the map in 1909, it was a byproduct of the secular socialist Aliyah. Here, however, it was meant to be a socialist city with all kinds of forward-thinking, progressive Marxian ideas of how a new world city would look, much like a kibbutz was a collective farm life, so the city was going to have those, those ideals in, the city, in, 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 uh, in, in real terms, in metropolitan terms. Of course, the city was, in 1909? Tel Aviv. Yes. Yeah. yes, Tel Aviv, right? Um, Tel Aviv, named for Alt Neuland. We mentioned, we mentioned uh, Herzl's classic fiction, um, and... Um, Tel Aviv, as a Jewish yeshuv, was evacuated during World War I. Jews starved to death. Um, the first Jewish spy ring was found, founded in World War I based in Zichron Yaakov, another story that I'll, I'll get to. Mili, uh, based on a pasuk, Netzach Yisrael, no Yishaker, we read it recently in a Haftarah. <coughs> um, but it's a hard time for the Jews in Palestine. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about Mili. Um, they decided uh, they were very charismatic figures, iconic and myth myth mythologized in, mo in, in, in uh, modern Israeli stories. Has anybody been to the Aronson Museum in Zichon Yaakov? I, I, I would, I'm surprised you have it. It's one of those like classic touristy places. It's really the stuff of, of mythos. There are there's suicides and there's love stories in the modern secular point of view. There's all kind. Of, it's a whole soap opera and tragedies. And um, very dynamic figures. Aaron Aronson, by the way, um, they, were, they were botanists of the highest order. He discovered something called Emachita, Mother of Wheat, uh, that revolutionized the whole wheat industry. He met, with, he, was, um, he met with Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States. He was a big figure who mysteriously disappeared um, during World War I. Uh, two of the spies, again, very, very celebrated figures, Absalom Feinberg and um, Yosef Lashansky, <laughs> 
Absalom Feinberg, by the way, was a first cousin of Yosef Feinberg. We met him very, very briefly. He was the one who happened to be um, in 1882, the same day where Shmuel Moliver had his meeting with the Baron, with Baron Rothschild. So Yosef Feinberg was there the same day to meet with the Baron to get his, to, to enlist his support. He was representing one of the first Moshevot, Rishon Letzion and would later be, later be kicked off ingloriously from Rishon Lutzion. Um, so his cousin, Avshalom Feinberg, was a major protagonist within the Neely. Um, Yosef's daughter was Dora Blach, who was one of the, one of the Jews murdered in, the, um, in Entebbe in 1976. So we'll connect all these dots, Bezrat Hashem. Um, she was I've, the one woman who died? She was the one woman. That, um, there were several um, people killed in the terminal during the actual escape, oh. but she was the elderly woman who had heart problems and was rushed to the hospital so it was obviously not there when they when they when they um, quickly re rescued everybody and um, and and Edie Amin had her murdered so she was the daughter and the niece of Avshalom Feinberg so the story of Ab by the way I'm really I, I I'm ruining my tour of, of um, Har Herzl that I ordinarily give what I usually do on Har Herzl which is a great opportunity to really get into modern Israel and it, it's because uh, you talk about the figures but of course the figures are really just Giving you so much of a slice of life of what 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 went into the founding of this uh, of this country and the return of the Jews to their Holy Land and um, what I do is one of the first places I go is the um, re it, it, well, let me let me I, I, I go I, I talk about these guys and then at the end I, I go I go to Yoni Netanyahu's cavern and I talk about the whole story and then I connect and I pull out my map and I have my six degrees of Dora Bloch where I talk about how all these Jews are really related and that we're all one big family. That's my, uh, that's, that's, that's how my sako finish uh, in my guide. But let me tell you this story now because it's a good one. Yeah, go ahead. And his parents named him Absalom? Absalom. That's such a bad name though. Yeah, interesting. I don't know, it's true. It's not been a historic name. Uh, yeah, interesting point. I don't know if it's a bad name, with or worse. Modern secular Israelis often choose. Um, Hey, that was my example that always comes to my mind. Exactly, right? Ariel Shulman's own son is Omri, and many it's a very popular Israeli name. Uh, Amnon. Amnon is it is, and it's a common name. Is it? It is, for sure. Amnon Rubinstein, politicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of these uh, names are used. They don't, they don't pay attention to the source of the name. They just like the sound sometimes. The uh, anyway, the story, the story of the Neely. Um, they. Want, their idea was that the British was gonna, were going to save the Jews. Wow, were they wrong. But compared to the Ottomans, the British seemed benign. At least maybe there was hope for the future. and Maybe they could get a state out of the British. And that was, that was the belief. And so they spied on the Ottoman regime on behalf of the British who were based down in Cairo. They did this with the front of being botanists, which they genuinely were. And they go around uh, with their scientific, and, and again, Aaron Aronson was the iconic fi figurehead. You know, he had the, all the public prestige, international prestige, to back up that, uh, that, that, that idea of botany. But meanwhile, they were, they were delivering messages in code and all kinds of valuable secrets to the Brits down in Egypt. And at one point, Absalom Feinberg and Joseph Lashansky um, set out on, on a camelback to go to Egypt with all of their secrets. And again, they carried, I think they were carrying a new strain of palm tree in their satchels. Uh, as again, that was their excuse for traveling to Egypt. They were, they were trading botany um, scientific uh, research. And in the middle of the Sinai Desert, they were accosted by Bedouin. And Absalom Feinberg would be murdered, and Yosef Lashansky got, got away. 
um, there's a very dramatic story that I tell when we go to, when I guide uh, Zichron Yaakov, um, Lirsa Plashansky later on, they, they um, oh, it's a terrible thing, the Ottomans then, um, they, <coughs> they uh, threatened the Jews, they locked them into the shul, the main shul in Zichron Yaakov, unless they gave over Yosef Lashansky, which they refused to do. In the end, they caught Lashansky, and, and he was hanged in Damascus. But um, Absalom Feinberg was murdered, and worse, um, they, nobody could, the Jews were, had no political stature anywhere in the world. It was the middle of the war, and his remains were lost. Now, the family was originally traditional. They, too, like most Jews in Palestine at the time, went off became more secularized, but they enjoyed, they still were traditional. They still had basic Jewish values. They understood that you take a body and you bury it, and his body was lost, and it became a subject, again, as I say, a, a mythologized subject, you know, where's Absalom Feinberg? So cut fast forward, 1967, of the um, vast tracts of land that Akadosh Baruch Hu miraculously, suddenly, suddenly and unexpectedly bestowed to Klal Yisrael in post-67, was the whole Sinai Desert. And you can be certain that Jews went back uh, over half a century later to go search for the re remains of Absalom Feinberg. And you're literally looking for a needle in a haystack. Where are you going to find a half century old uh, um, uh, decomposed body? And they looked and they searched and they, they, and they approached. They talked to Bedouin in the area and they asked the Bedouin if they could tell anything. And the Bedouins um, eventually led them to uh, an old legend of theirs, the legend of the miraculous palm tree that grew. And who knew that there were any water sources in the middle of nowhere in the desert? And they asked, there's a palm tree in the desert? And they, they, he led them out to the palm tree in the desert and they buried under the palm tree. And guess what they found? Because the palm seeds that they were carrying as botanists, as their undercover uh, story, had actually taken root. And somehow there was water in the desert, and the palm tree gave away the location of Absalom Feinberg. His body was interred and reinterred, and it was, it was buried again in Har Herzl. So I stand by his body in Har Herzl, and we, we tell the story there, and we, I try to make all the connections that, you know, when it comes to Klal Yisrael, we really are a very small family. Um, as some like to say, there really are only 18 Jews in the world. The rest is done with mirrors. When was Lawrence of Arabia? Lawrence of Arabia is also during World War I. So right now? That's right. It's around this period. He's great. I like the hat. Yeah. yeah right. Um, <coughs> best picture, 1962. Best director, David Lean. The, um, <laughs> Peter O'Toole didn't win. It's been a while. Been a while. <coughs> yeah. yeah he had, you know, I know that. Oh, he never, he never got any in the end? I'm sorry. Um, that happens sometimes to people, yes. The, um, yeah. The, uh, by 1917, the Brits had defeated the Turks. There was a, there was a celebrated uh, defeat up in, um, in Megiddo where the Christians have a, uh, a misconceived uh, idea that that's Megiddo is the basis of Armageddon, which they misread. The Pasuk is referring to Mohammed Gogu Mago, which sounds like Megiddo, and they have get Armageddon out of all of that. Anyway, the big battle up in, Arm in, in Megiddo in the, Jezreel, in the Jezreel Valley, where uh, General Allenby defeats the Turks. In Yerushalayim, has, has anybody seen in Yerushalayim? You guys have been all over. I'm just curious, have you seen? There is a place where, they, where, event where, where symbolically the Turks holding Yerushalayim Surrendered to the uh, to Allenby. Do you know where it was? Yeah, it, it's a corner, like up by Pompano. Excellent. Cool. It's not a corner. It's it's a traffic circle. It's that circle right above where the buses come out. 
Exactly. And there's a whole there's a, there's a, there's a monument there. That's right. So now the British suddenly find themselves with, well, it's Ottoman Palestine together with a lot of other land that they conquered. But obviously, this this is quite a feather in their cap. That you remember now, for almost a century, the various Christian colonial powers have been going at it and vying for this part of the world as part of their general colonial mission. Yusha's coming back, and if he comes back, and we're the ones holding the keys to the Holy Land, doesn't that indicate that we're the chosen people in their own minds? And so they're very excited, but they're also overextended. This is the beginning of the implosion of the British Empire. They have all kinds of problems, financial problems. The war does not do them any favors. And um, they're not able to do much. So it's now called, we begin the period, the tragic period called British Mandate, Mandate Palestine, in which the British are technically in control. But you know, how do you control a land where you don't really live? The only way they'll have a land is when you've got people living in the land. Well, you do have people living in Palestine, but they're not your own. And they don't like you much. And they don't like one another either. So you got 100,000 Jews, you got 500,000 Arabs, and a lot of problems and not much resolution. And one of the first major, from, from our perspective, um, events to take place when the British take, take control of Palestine is um, Lord Balfour authors a declaration as one of, the, one of the figureheads of the new British mandate he offers his what's called Balfour Declaration in which for the first time in history since the destruction of the Second Temple the sovereign power in Eretz Yisrael uh, pro proclaimed and I'll quote the one uh, it, the, the most interesting line in the letter in the Balfour Declaration from 1917 where it says that he, the, the Declaration views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. It is an utterly ambiguous statement. It could mean a home. Would you like two stories or one story in your home? A garage? Would you like a backyard for the Jewish people in your home in Palestine? Meaning nobody would talk, it doesn't say in the Balfour Declaration a homeland or any kind of sovereignty, or anything. It doesn't spell out what the terms were, but you know what? Jews are not picky. We'll take what we can get. At least that was the, that was the feeling, that was the reaction of the, Jew, of the average Jew in the street. The fact that anybody, no less the, the new sovereign power in Palestine, would somehow acknowledge the Jews belonged here, that was unprecedented, and it was celebrated. Um, it was regarded by, in general, as a commitment by England to a Jewish state in Palestine. Back, flashback, flashback. Um, around the time, we talked about this around the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, 1800 years earlier, in which arguably that was the last time the Jews thought that they had a chance to come back to Eretz Yisrael and build a third commonwealth. And it was then that, they, that we talked about the famous Gemara in the third, at the end of Kesubos, the 13th parak, that talks about the three oaths. Who remembers history tests? Who remembers the three oaths? Barak? Israel can't, uh, we can't fight for Israel? Um, we can't be Ola B'chama. We're not allowed to take Eretz Yisrael by force. Uh, we're not allowed to settle <laughs> land? No, no. 
Um, we're not. They have have one of the three oaths. They're not allowed to oppress us too much, and 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 three, we're not allowed to rebel against them. Okay. Um, with this Balfour Declaration by no less than the sovereign power in Palestine, there is a great figure who we've met recently who declares that from this point, the three oaths are no longer binding. Who is this figure? No. Um, his name was Rav Meir Simcha Dvinsk, otherwise known as the Orsameach, who writes this, he writes a longer tshuva on the subject, he says, the oath requires that Jews not take the land by force. When the Balfour Declaration was signed, Jews were given um, rights to the land by the autonomous power, and thereafter, it's not taking it by force. It was acknowledged that they could. Um, there are other positions, the Stipler, and there are many other, other, other uh, ways of understanding the three oaths. We said that there, the, some of the, the uh, minority, a small minority within the Torah world, um, understand that three oaths are still binding, but um, the Stiplagon had a very straightforward take on it. He said, the oaths prevent us from taking the land by force. Even, he acknowledges, if you want to say that the Zionist regime would take the land by force, thereby breaking the three oaths, they broke the deal. That's their Avera. Nowhere in the three oaths does it say that it's pro prohibited for Jews to live in the land after the fact. So the fact that we're here, living here, living Torah here, and doing whatever we're doing here, the Stiplegon would say that's not a problem, a violation of these oaths. Now, there was dancing in the streets. There was a general sense of celebration, generally in the secular world. And um, reports indicate that um, the Gadol Hador, Chafetz Chaim, was actually brought to tears. Why was he brought to tears? And they weren't tears of happiness at, the, at, at listening to the Balfour Declaration. They were tears of sadness at the reaction of the Jews. He said, he said why are they celebrating? HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised us that we're going to come back to our Holy Land. It's part of, the, part of our legacy. The Pasuk says, We're coming back. There's going to be a, three, a third base, base of Mikdash. He found that the celebration reflected a lack of amuna. People no longer believed that, and it took some non-Jew making an, art, an ambiguous declaration to somehow make them believe that they could come back. Wait, but that just let, me, let me finish, and you'll, you'll ask. You'll ask, you'll hear, the, hear the whole thing. He says, the only star, the only deed of, of, um, of uh, a contract that we need is the Torah. He says, people are rejoicing at what they perceive as some kind of a geula, ke'en geula, a, a figurative geula. He says, he said further, with the Jews in Eretz Israel not keeping Shabbos, with the irreligious Jews, the prospects are complicated. HaKadosh Baruch Hu only promises coming back to the land on condition that we keep his Torah and we keep the mitzvahs. Rav Pam, one of the Gedolei Ador in, in America, said that the Chafetz Chaim uh, encouraged Shomri Mitzvahs to go to Eretz Israel. He wanted to be part of building up. In other words, he wasn't defeatist, anti-Zionist and the level of let's not do anything. He sent people, go and try to do as best you can um, in order to hasten the, uh, the, the Geula. The, the, and eventually he said that we're living in times of the Ikvis of the Mashiach, um, in which is described in the Gemara famously in Sanhedrin and Sariches. Um, the Gemara describes how a severely oppressed people, the Jewish people, 
whether we'll be entirely virtuous or alternately entirely guilty, and the jury's out still, we don't know which, which, which model we're following, will um, we'll commence. And one of the signs, Rashi says, the clearest sign that the exile is about to end, we've, we've heard this already, the clearest sign, the Jews will bring forth fruit from the land. And that's, remember we told the story of the Nitziv coming and uh, changing into his Shabbos clothes to drink the first glass of wine that was harvested by Jews in Eretz Yisrael in the modern era, uh, very much with this Gemara in mind. So, Akiva, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to ask, couldn't they just have been celebrating, like, like even from a Torah perspective, the Torah was Because, all right, fine, Hashem promised it to us, and now he's giving it to us, so we celebrate it. I think so, too. I think so, too. I think it's, in, it's, it's, all, it's all in perspective of how you take it. I think that his reaction was to the fact that they didn't just do that and see the possibly positive tidings from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but that they actually were, were, were basing too much of their faith in the Goyim, which is, which is always a toxic mix, mix for us. You remember all the way back to Asa HaMelech who, who placed his faith and made an alliance that went nowhere for him and only, only was a, a source of his undoing. And in the Purim story, we celebrated... I right. Mean, and Many illustrations through history of our depending too much on the non-Jewish opinion. Um, and we're supposed to be Ein Lanu Ela Avinu We really only have a Kaddish Baruch Hu no, no, to depend I mean, on. Oh, we going to say? Even the opposite of that. Oh, what, At the what? very, very end of the Purim story, we celebrated our victory. And, and I mean, eventually we did get back to Israel, but that was a, a secular victory. I, I disagree. I wouldn't see that as a secular victory at all. The celebration by Yehudim Haisa Ora Vesimcha Vesasan, as the Gemara self darshans, they're celebrating Torah. They're reaffirming the Aserah Dibros, Nasev and Ishma all over again. That's the real. That's the. It's not celebrating the secular military victory as much as the as the affirmation, reaffirmation of Torah and Mitzvahs. That's not a sign of Hashem that that uh, we got in the greatest Palestine that the. Along the lines of what Akiva says, a general kind of, let's say, um, optimistic note. Oh, wow, that's a nice development. Great, if you keep it at that. But clearly people were, taking, were, were inflating it far beyond that, out of proportion. Some of the after effects of the war. Um, immediately, probably one of the biggest spin-offs of the war, you learn this in a secular class too, was what they called from 1917 the October Revolution. Do you know to which that, defer, that refers? Yeah, with the, the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks in Russia. Yeah, the October Revolution will lead to an entirely new system of a Russian dictatorship. Many, 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 a disproportionate number of Jews, secular Jews were involved, most famously Leon Trotsky, who was initially an ally of Stalin. He was very high up, in the, and many other Jews were very, very high up in the Bolshevik hierarchy. Um, the Bolsheviks would be uh, the latest bitter pill uh, in an, un, an unending um, series of persecutions in Russia. The uh, observant Jews were now openly persecuted. The Bolsheviks closed schools and synagogues. Rabbis were sent into exile. There was, if there was ever any hope for Russian Jews, there seemed to be absolutely none uh, for Bolshevik, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, initially, there were many Jews, the secular Jews, who welcomed the revolution. Remember how dispirited they'd become with the world when they saw, uh, this is already in the 1880s, how it didn't matter what you did, they hated the Jews no matter what. They, felt, they, they felt that maybe if there was a, an uprising of the proletariat, of the, of the common working masses, that maybe there was hope in the future, and that was the attitude at first. Um, 
Well, that changed. Most of the Jews, Trotsky included, uh, would eventually, the Bolsheviks would turn on, and the um, overthrow and the eventual communist regime that would develop in Russia would, would turn to decades of oppression, death, and misery. Uh, for almost all Jews in the former Soviet Union, um, and, and, and one in which, um, to a large degree, Torah was effectively eradicated. It was illegal to learn or practice Torah, and so indeed, Torah was, um, for the first time, most effectively um, destroyed. Who was affected? Uh, Jews across Russia. Lithuania, the Ukraine, Poland, um, even, even moving towards Central Eastern Europe, most Jewish communities would experience turmoil. Um, there would be, between the years eight, 1918 and 1921 alone, there were, count them, 2,000 pogroms, leading to 150,000 Jewish murders, just in the post-war years alone. I mean, that's not even counting all, the, all, all of the horrors of the war itself unabated misery for our family in Europe. Um, and with that now, there's now a new, um, new desperate influx, a, a, a wave of immigration sweeping mainly to the Americas, somewhat to Palestine, at the same time somewhat to South Africa, to the South America, to Australia, but overwhelmingly to the United States, there would be, there would, and, and to Canada for sure, and some to South America and Central America, there would be a massive influx of Jews whose families, um, whose families went to America in, during, during or post-World War I. That's when, that's when you can trace, uh, they're, they're coming over from the old country, right? Um, so that had one immediate offshoot. Um, by the mid-1920s, without any competition, the United States became and remains, till today, the largest Jewish population in the world. In the mid-1920s, there were 4.5 million. The Jewish community, the 13.5 the, the, the million pre-World War I uh, quickly went down with all of the uh, murders during, during the war. Um, the American Jewish community, as well as the Jews in Western Europe, would become increasingly active in, the, in politics in their respective countries. Um, in Eastern and Central Europe, the Jews started to form, and this is actually, if you, you're following the elections that are taking place tomorrow in Israel, um, the closest antecedent, like the closest uh, you know, precursor to these elections today and to the different factions, you'd find if you studied, let's say, Poland between the wars, you find equivalent parties um, to what we have in Israel today with radical secularists and religious parties and everything in between represented that were bitterly opposed to one another. They formed their own parties to regulate communal life because they were given a certain limit of autonomy by the non-Jewish authorities. You Jews handle your own affairs. But at this point now, the Jewish world is so fractious, is so contentious internally. Uh, how do we... Who's going to handle the affairs? Well, it's going to make a big difference if it's religious Jews or if it's secular Jews or somebody in between. Um, that would actually characterize a lot. The, the wars, the infighting, the constant elections uh, would characterize a lot of the um, post-World War I life. The Agudas Israel, of course, is now is the relatively new. We met them yesterday, the, the, the religious party. They're at odds with the leftist Bund, the socialist party, the Mizrahi or the national religious and the other, the Zionist parties and others. Um, 
I'm going to now talk about a couple of figures, a couple of, of, of uh, yet, yet, yet a few more um, very unusual figures that also represent the times. Uh, the first one for a change is a woman. Um, her, name, her name was Sarah Schneer. Um, she lived between the uh, short life, 1883 to 1935. She was not somebody you would have ever pegged as being somebody who would fit into a history class. She was unassuming, a tsanua, a modest, understated person uh, with no personal ambitions of her own. She came. From, she was Hasidic. She came from a Belzer home, um, and she founded Beis Yaakov. Not bad. Not bad. She actually was not the first time. Tells. The great yeshiva in Tells had previously opened a seminary called Yavne for girls in Lithuania with a similar idea in mind. What was the goal of the school? And what was the goal of Tells school? What's going on with women at this point in history? Until this time, women, our great-grandmothers, grandmothers, um, were generally illiterate. Literally. Meaning, literally illiterate. They were... They... um, couldn't read or write. They didn't need to. They did other things around the house. They shafted the chickens. They, 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 did, they, they, they had other menial tasks. But in the secular world, they, they... Well, okay, that's in the secular world. But I'm talking about, generally speaking, in religious terms, women didn't learn to read or write. If they read, they read at a basic level. Remember, Tzena Ureno was a, Chumash, a commentary in Chumash that was specifically meant for women, and it was often, it was often read to them. They didn't themselves read it. Which is not to say that they were um, ignorant or even uh, or, 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 or uh, uh, unintelligent. Some of the great figures, if you read the Makor Baruch, you read about some incredibly intelligent women. It's just that it was not their niche in life to go to school. School was um, what boys did. The uh, Enlightenment changed all this. Now there are new, what seem to be alternatives to religious life, even for women. And with that now, you know, women sometimes are exploring those alternatives. Now, what's going on with boys in the pre-war, in the pre-war and then post-World War I um, period? The boys in religious, they were also going off to Derech, but if they were from religious families, they went to Cheder. They went to traditional school. They learned Torah. Um, they went to shul with their fathers. The girls didn't really have an institutionalized mechanism for staying religious. They were exposed to modernity. They often went to vaudeville, to theater, to, uh, to, to, to the plays. When movies came out, the girls went to the movies. They were inundated uh, with all of these modern messages. Um, they, had increasing, they had decreasing sources of inspiration for Yeresh Shemaim uh, beyond their homes. And some of the homes were strong, and some of them simply weren't. And, uh, and, and, and that was the situation. Now, we know, can a girl learn? The, the uh, Gemara that everybody quotes, and I've quoted it several times this year, is the Gemara in Sota and Chafa Aleph that Rabbi Yezers teaches, Tiflus. If you teach your daughter Tyra, you teach her Tiflus, which is uh, hard to define precisely, but some kind of irresponsibility. She'll learn it half-baked. Uh, she will not, uh, she'll, she'll, she'll um, misinterpret it, and it'll become some, something um, corrupt. Now, Sarah Schneer was anything but a feminist. She was a modest Belzer Chassid <laughs> who saw the girls going off and saw the desperate need to somehow teach Yerat Shemayim. And her idea was not to teach the girls Torah per se, but um, she wanted the girls to love Hashem. And she started a school. 
and uh, one, one development in a back, in somebody's, uh, somebody's house, eventually they moved an apartment. Uh, you can go in Krakow today to the first official site of the first base Yaakov. <laughs> Anybody ever been there in Krakow in the south of Poland? You can see the first site of the base Yaakov. It's obviously... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. The, um, initially, she met with intense resistance. She was a radical. She was a reformer, they claimed. Um, anything new is suspicious. When have, we, when have we heard this idea before? In the modern era, this is, this is the way, who, who else got this kind of reception? Rabbi Shal Salanter, the Muslim movement, and many other great L'Shem Shemaim Jews trying to do something new in response to modernity. The yeshiva movement. The yeshiva movement, Why right? You? Was branded outcast. Why you? Why you, to a large degree. Anything new and different, um, sometimes the criticism would be valid. Sometimes new was indeed treif. And sometimes, like in the case of Sarah Schneer, pure and holy and just, it seems so, I mean, can you imagine girls had never gone to school and suddenly here's a, here's a woman coming and opening the school specifically teaching Torah, specifically to women? Where did you cast money? What's that? It was like a private school. It was like a yeshiva. That's right. That's, 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 that was what it was. However, everything changed when she received the support from the Chafetz Chaim, Rav Chaim Moser Grzynski, the uh, Rebbe's from Gur and Bells, and then many others would come around and support her efforts. The Ger Rebbe said, on Leil Shabbos, the father and the son come to my tish. Remember the Rebbe's table, he, learned, he taught Tyra there. It was, it, was, it was a whole, it was an intellectual feast, but it was also a, a feast for the neshama. The person felt like he belonged to something so much greater than himself. If, of course, you were lucky enough to be a man or his son. He, and the, the, the Rebbe continued, he said, the mother and daughter, meanwhile, they don't have what to do, so they attend the theater. He, he realized this. How can a base Yisrael survive like this? Something has to change. The Chafetz Chaim, in his approbation, in his haskama for the new school system, the base Yaakov schools, wrote that the, the, the current conditions um, meant... meant the, the, and get this far, it's terribly important. Um, the girls are going out increasingly in the workforce. The girls are receiving, therefore, increasingly a secular education. If you're not going to give them a Torah education on par with their secular education, they'll think Torah is quaint and, ar and archaic. They'll reject it as anti-intellectual present to them the rich intellectual heritage of Tyra and they'll, they'll, they'll see it and they'll, they'll incorporate it into their lives as part of their heritage. And um, he said, with this we can depart from the traditional prohibition against teaching women Tyra. Um, and when he said this, Beis Yaakov officially became a part of the Agudas Israel, meaning politically, institutionally, it joined, it was part, it was got full membership. Um, this is not the same thing. Anybody following this, it's really a blip on the, on the, on the, it, it, it's irrelevant, but there's a tiny group of, of women who now have their, uh, of Haredi women, who are trying to elect their own party in tomorrow's elections, and there, notably, they lack the Chafetz Chaim's endorsement or anybody's endorsement um, for what they're doing. The only way you can do something radical, like Sarah Schneer did, was if you have the backing of the likes of the Chafetz Chaim and of Chaim Moser and the Ger Rebbe. Um, ultimately, beginning in 1917, she opened over 200 schools for about 35,000 girls. She opened a teacher's seminary to training teachers themselves beginning in 1923. 
Today, it's the dominant school system for girls internationally um, in, in, the, in the Torah world. And it's striking because, of course, back then it was seen as this cutting edge, modernist, new, radical, almost people called it reform. And today, Beis Yaakov, Beis Yaakov is, the, uh, is an icon of Frumkite. Um, and uh, Sarah Schneer has, has immense uh, ilui immense uh, for her neshama, elevation for her neshama. Every girl that goes to Beis Yaakov um, elevates her all the more. Um, in the Sephardi world, uh, contemporary Posik, Rav Yaakov Chaim Sofer writes a book called the Kafa Chaim, which is called the Sephardi equivalent of the Mishnah Burra. Um, he was in Baghdad. He was a student of the Ben Ishchai. Uh, in 1904, he came to Eretz Yisrael to visit Kivrei Tzadikim, as Jews did. That's what you did if you came to Eretz Yisrael. You visited Kivrei Tzadikim, uh, the graves of the righteous. Um, but he came to Yerushalayim and he couldn't leave. Yerushalayim had that effect on people sometimes. Um, I know other people who that happened to. <clears throat> um, well, you left and then you came back. I did, but the leaving was only so I can get my fellowship money and learn a little more Torah. And then the minute the fellowship um, expired, it turned to a pumpkin. So we were on the next, uh, uh, next, next plane. Literally, my fe- my 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 obligation to study at Yeshiva University terminated on on June twenty second. I passed my last final. I got my I got my uh, my master's in psychology, um, and on we made Aliyah on June twenty third. Um, anyway, so the Kafa Chaim stayed in Yerushalayim. He studied at the Sephardi Yeshiva, the traditional Beit El Yeshiva, and, and another Yeshiva called Shoshanim Ledavid. Um, he was known to almost never leave. That's bad timing. Almost never leave the base Medrash. The uh, he um, he also, in addition to his ten-volume work on Kafa Chaim, on the Orachaim and the Yordea broad in scope, broader than the Mishnah Barua. He also has comments, his works on halacha, on agadata, uh, explaining also the origins of the Iraqi Jewish minhagim. Um, I have two more figures. The last one I'm going to save. I, I, I've, I've already admitted that I'm sometimes irrational in, in featuring some figures more than I feature others. So the, la- the last one I'm going to talk about is one of my personal heroes. Uh, you'll hear why in a moment. Uh, uh, the next one is, is one of the Gdolim of this time period, too, is Rav Shimon Shkop, who lived from 1816 to 1939. He was the Rosh Yeshiva in Tel's Yeshiva. He had learned in Mir and Volozhin, so you see there's a lot of integration. He was a student of the Nitziv, Rav Chaim Brisker. You started to hear there's a pattern. A lot of the Gdolim really knew each other, learned together, learned from one another. Um, he was, Rav Shkop is associated with, with what we call still today the Tel's Derech of analytical learning. He would develop it to the, take it to the next level. Um, during World War I, he had a chance to leave Europe uh, to survive. And uh, local leaders begged him to get out to save himself and thereby all the Torah that he represented. And he could help the other Jews abroad. And he wouldn't leave. He said, I'm not going to abandon my community. And he stayed and suffered. Um, he was a Rav in many different places with all the tumult and moving around. Uh, he actually... Controversially, from 1928 to 1929, he was the Rosh Yeshiva of the Rabbeinu Yitzchak Theological Seminary, uh, which would be YU's uh, rabbinic school later on. And, and, and there were those who criticized him for doing that. Reitz was already controversial in the late 20s. We'll, we'll talk about YU. That'll certainly uh, be part of our discussion in modern, modern history. Um, he wrote Shari Yosher. He wrote other works on Shas. Uh, all lumbus, all deep, deep uh, and analytical 
um, works, also very much in the realm of, he were in practical halacha. Um, the other figure I want to talk about today is Rav Baruch Ber Leibovitz. Um, if you remember the story of Rav Chaim said that, um, was it, the, the cow is the table, and they have the different drushes, so it was Rav Baruch Ber who went to milk the table, in, 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 in the way they told the joke. He was considered the Talmud Mufak of Rav Chaim Brisker, the great uh, prominent student of Rav Chaim Brisker, uh, the whole Brisker approach. He wrote his own uh, commentary on Shas called the Birkas Shmuel, which is um, learned all over the world in, in, uh, in, in base Medrash and Kolel. It's one of the standards on Shas. Uh, he was Rosh Hashiva, <laughs> the Kamenetz Yeshiva in the 1920s. Um, he was also Rosh Hashiva in Slobodka. You have to understand Slobodka, which we met when we talked about the Muslim movement. Slobodka is a small village with two yeshivas. Um, kind of like Devinz was a small place with two great rabbis, uh, the Orsameach and uh, the Ragachavar. So Slobodka had certainly the base Israel yeshiva named for Rabbi Israel Salanter. Okay? Uh, but it also had a great yeshiva called the Knesset Base Yitzchak, named for Rabbi Yitzchak Khan Inspector. Um, and they actually were one yeshiva that split over the Musser dispute, and the one went Musser style, and the other one didn't have Musser. Um, but the respective Rosh Yeshiva uh, was Baruch Ber Leibovitz in Knesset Beis Yitzchak, the non-Musser Yeshiva, and Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein was in, uh, in, in, um, in, in, in Knesset Beis Yisrael, and they were very close. They shared students, meaning as much as they had ideological differences, they were very, very close. Um, Rav Baruch Ber was asked why a small place like Slobodka should have two such immense yeshivas, one among the most popular in the, um, uh, in, in the early part of the 20th century. So he explained, he said, um, Slobodka doesn't have a church. Uh, where in Eretz Israel can we say that? Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, interesting, yeah. There's a church in Jaffa, I think. So. I know, but that's, oh, you're saying it's part of the same municipality. Yeah, now it is. Okay, it's fair enough. Um, I'll tell you a few stories. They're fantastic about Rav Baruch Ber. Uh, there are more. These are just my favorites. But you can go. If you ever learn about him, he's one of the more more neshumadika oh, immense personalities. His midos, his his Abbas Yisrael. He, he he was just overflowed with uh, with with Tyra and goodness and really the the icon of a of a warm Rebbe figure. So. Uh, one of the stories is a true story that happened to him. He, um, his daughter was engaged to a young man, and um, they were all set to go. Everything was ordered, and the um, right before the chuppah, the young man humiliated his daughter and the whole family by just leaving, and he'd give nobody notice, and he simply didn't appear. A terrible busha, terrible humiliation for the whole family. Um, Rav Baruch Bear's response. And how do, you, how do you respond? How do you rebuke the young man? What do you do? You go to punch him out? You know, that's the modern, modern solution. So his response, the minhag back in those days was the bacher received from the, the, the bride's family a, custom, <coughs> a customary hat and jacket and pocket watch. That's what they received. The chazunish wore his. It was a singular hat and jacket that he wore throughout the rest of his life that he got for his chasna. Anyway, um, Rav Baruch Bear sent the chassan, the hat, the jacket, and the pocket watch, at pocket watch, 
as a way of giving a gentle protest. Here, you can have these. Ouch! Beautiful rebuke. Okay, that's how, that's how Rebarak Bear did it. Years later, Rebarak Bear gets a letter from the same man who's now married, his daughter, Rebarak Bear's daughter married, Baruch Hashem. Anyway, the man is now married, and he asks Rebarak Bear for Haskama, a letter of approbation, uh, recommending him for a job as a Rav in a certain, in a certain town. Um, I think the term is chutzpah. Okay. So he asks for a letter from Rav Baruch Bear. And Baruch Baruch Bear writes the letter. And then assembles the base team. And he asks the base team to read the letter very, very careful. He wants to make sure there's not a word that could be read or, or misinterpreted as having any, any kind of hatred in there. He writes a beautiful letter recommending the young man, nothing personal in there whatsoever. And the base team certifies not even a nuance of hatred in there. Um, you've heard the name Chaim Nachman Bialik where do you know of him he's the poet right playwright poet right he's called Israel's poet laureate um, he like many of the secular Jews the iconic Jews of the Zionist movement started out religious he actually learned I know, with I know Rav, um, Rav Cook said that wait, you should compare he compared Amos Oz yeah and uh, or somebody uh, no Amos yeah Yeah. So they think that if he um, was in a Litvish background where he could write prose, then he would have he, he would have stayed in Torah. And Bialik was in a in a in a Litvish background and he was a poet. So if he had been in a Hasidic background, what did you think of that? Rav Cook says that about Amos Oz. Amos Oz. No. No, I'm no, I'm saying. Amos Oz. No, no, no. Uh, not Amos Oz. Oh, Chadaam. You said. Oh, that's what you got confused. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's Rav Cook. What a brilliant insight. Yeah. 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 I mean, all, all speculative. Anyway, he, Bialik, learned with Baruch Bear when they were, when they were students way back in Volozhin, years before, before he, before he went off the derech, before he assimilated. Um, and years later, the legend goes, Bialik comes from Baruch Bear. Baruch Bear is this just warm, embracing figure that you just gotta love. Nobody resisted him. And, and, and Bialik comes and he finds his old friend, and he talks to him about all of the beautiful benefits of the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, and he tries to persuade him, you really should try it, Rav Baruch. you don't know what you're missing. And um, he gushed, he says, you don't realize, you, we know things you don't know. We can tell you, he said this, Bialik said this, we can tell you when Abaya was born, we can tell you when Abaya died. We can tell you where he lived his life, we can tell you where he's buried. Some of us might have even made a barbecue bite there. Um, among God. The uh, Baruch Bear had a famous response. You know this? A very famous story. He didn't look in the face of Bialik once because you're not allowed to look in the face of a Russia. So he was careful not to look. He didn't, it, that was not conveyed. He wouldn't want to insult the man either, but he didn't look at him. Um, and he says, he said, in the Gemara, Abaya is still alive and well. The Haskalah has buried Abaya. But it's the Gemara that we learned today that keeps him alive. What is the Haskalah? He responds to Bialik. It's a grossa chevra kedisha. It's a big burial society. I'm trying to bury them while we're keeping the, the Torah world is keeping them alive and well. It goes much better in the original Yiddish. Um, he had a, I'm going to keep you a little bit late. I didn't know it would take this long, but you have to hear these stories. And I'm not going to give short shrift to Rebarak there. His voice was out of this world. Um, and his Rebbe Rav Chaim's voice was, no, 
And early in his career, he overheard some of the students complaining and saying, oh, Rav Baruch Baer is so much of a bigger Talmud Chacham and Sadiq than Rav Chaim, because listen to his voice, because people are superficial that way. Um, and Rav Baruch Baer overheard them and he corrected them. He says, you don't realize, Hashem doesn't make perfect people. But Rav Chaim Brisker was so perfect that Hashem had to do something symbolic, so he gave him an imperfect, he gave him an imperfect voice. Um, but then he said, Hashem also doesn't make creatures that lack any redeeming value. So he gave me a decent voice. <laughs> um, when he used to go visit, this is, this, he's, he, features, um, he features nicely in All for the Boss, who he used to go to the state's fundraising for commonets for the yeshiva, and he used to stay in Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman's house. And it was legendary. The two of them, Rav Yaakov Yosef, also had a beautiful voice, and they would sing together, and all the guests and people would come from miles just to hear the Gadol, the gadol sing with the Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, every Gadol, I have two more. Every Gadol has a chicken story. Every story, you know, like in, in, in the realm of, of, of a Magid, everybody has a chicken story, so Rav Baruch Bear has his own chicken story. Rav Baruch Bear's chicken story was one Arab Shabbos, a um, simple yid comes to him with a shayla and a chicken. That's what used to be back in the day before we had kashrus certifications. People checked their own sh uh, chickens and knew enough to ask shaylas when there was a question about them. And he brought it to the Rebbe and he didn't know how to pass it. And um, so Rebbe Barak did the only thing he'd do. He said, I have to go and I'll have to travel to the neighboring village to a local dayan. He knows this better than I do and you'll have to wait for me. So he goes, he travels to the dying week with an old friend we hadn't seen in a long time. And they were so excited to see each other that somehow the chicken got uh, pushed to the back of the room and they got caught up in, in, in uh, Rashi and Tosfos and Rishonim and they, 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 were, uh, they were lost in Lomdus. And finally they remembered the bird. Sometime it passed, they remembered, oh, there's a bird to be passing here. And the dying comes, looks at the bird and says, can't save this bird. No, it's a trafe. Yeah, not, not a, it's an avela. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. The barber groaned and took the bird in his hand, went home, and he said he, he saw the Jew had been waiting there, and he asked, what's, what's taking so long? It's almost coming on Shabbos. What are we going to do? I've got to cook the chicken. Um, barber said, um, tell me, you have another chicken at home? The man said, this is Shabbos. I don't think so. And um, so barber didn't tell him the psaac. He went to the kitchen. He uh, took his chicken that the rabbi said he put on the, on the blech, uh, off, the, off the blech, and um, he said, I'm sorry, this is why it took so long. It took a very long time to cook. And he handed him the pot, and the man went home with his freshly cooked chicken already for Shabbos. And then the Rebbitzin got home. <laughs> and she, she knew her husband. And she, 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 said, she said as follows. Her conclusion to the story was, she'd heard of a lot of, she'd, learned, she'd heard of a Shabbos of Veda of lost objects before. She never knew a cooked chicken that had run away was her fantastic response to the whole story. At the end of his life, people asked Rav Baruch Bear about his various accomplishments. Uh, they said, were you great in learning? He said, ah, nobody in learning. How about your midos? He said, eh, I can, I can improve my midos. How about as a manhig, as a leader of Klal Yisrael? He said, eh. He said, do you have any virtues? He paused and he said, in Yiddish too, Avis Yisrael, yeah. <laughs> Have a good evening.